You're listening to Vet Candy. Hi, this is Dr. Jessica Turner, and you were listening to Living Well with Dr. Jessica. You're one stop for all things wellness, not just what to eat or how to move, but everything in between. And today, I'm excited to, I think, just dig a little deeper into a topic that's been brought up uh, several times in previous episodes, but never like the the real focus behind um, our time together. And it, it's going to be exploring some of the things that are causing veterinarians to be still kind of on that fearful side of practice ownership and and also bringing light to some of the, the changes that are happening within our industry that honestly, if, if you're like me, if I wasn't on this show, like I would be so oblivious to. And so we just really want to make sure that our listeners are staying up to date with all the excitement that's out there. And I'm excited to have our guest on today because I think she's just going to, I think she's going to blow your mind with some of the things she's going to talk about because there's just so many that are kind of still left in the dark. So please help me with welcome and one of our guests today, Dr. Pam Hill. She has held numerous high-level leadership roles within veterinary medicine from chief of staff to chief medical officer. She is currently thriving as a highly engaged veterinary industry consultant as an operations, startup, and firm building subject matter expert. She is a graduate of the Tuskegee University College of Veterinary Medicine and also earned her Master's of Business Administration from St. George University. She is a member of the AVMA and Georgia VMA and also serves on the Dean's Council for Tuskegee University College of Veterinary Medicine and the AVMA Professional Liability Insurance Trust. She recently joined the Wedgwood Pharmacy Board in 2022, and in addition to this, she is a member of Vet Partners. Dr. Pam is also a Florida State University 2023 Juris Master's candidate, and she shares her home in Atlanta, Georgia with her five pups and her husband, Chuck, who is a retired U.S. Air Force veteran. So thank you so much, Pam, Dr. Pam, for being on with us today. I always just love to kind of give you the stage, let you share your story um, and how you ended up doing the work that you're doing today and, and the passions that you're exploring. Well, thank you, Dr. Jessica, for having me here. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen to me because sometimes I wonder, do I have anything really to say? Yes, you do. <laughs> and, and, well, thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm honored to be here, as said. So, yes, I've been in the veterinary community now for 30 plus years. I'm a, as noted, a Tuskegee grad. I practiced for about 10 years. After that, in Knoxville, Tennessee, after I graduated, moved to Atlanta. And that's when I began my foray into working with large group practices, you know, what we traditionally are now calling corporations. That was with uh, PetSmart Veterinary Services, which became VetSmart, which became Banfield, which gave me my opportunity to become a chief of staff and lead a hospital uh, to become aware of the business operations and veterinary practices and what makes a veterinary practice profitable. And from there, I moved to, to working with another group that's an aggregator that actually buys veterinary practices and helps to um, grow them from there. And I've worked with a couple other groups in that respect as well. In the middle of there, I did a year at a humane organization in Arizona, which was amazing to work on the humane org side, um, but then came back 
I guess I'm a, a glutton there for that business piece, but then came back to that multi-unit management. And my last role was a chief medical officer in a group as well. Now I'm more acting as a consultant within the veterinary community. I, I want to take this experience that I've had one to share with other veterinarians, to share with other groups, to help the veterinary community continue to really reinvest in itself, to show how we can also be practice owners and not just have to you know, work for a veterinary corporation, which there's nothing wrong with that. There's a great opportunity there, but you know, I want us to also look introspectively as a veterinary community as what we should be doing going forward. Just listening to, you know, your your bio and, and what you showed just now, you have such a wealth of experience in so many different areas of our profession. I think that alone just gives you such a unique perspective to be able to to kind of look at everything as a whole. And I love that you're so passionate about being at the forefront of what is happening and the change that is occurring and being like in a liaison for so many of us that are we don't know half of what's going on. I mean, we do, but we don't because we're so focused on just, you know, surviving day to day and in practice life or whatever it may be. Um, And so I'm curious just to get, you know, with your experience and, and so many years in different areas of the profession, what kind of changes have you seen over that time? And what are some of the main ones that are occurring right now that, you really want to leave our listeners with a better understanding of um, when they get off of this. Absolutely. Well, you know, I was one of those traditional graduates where you graduate and you go to work either for someone or, you know, I would say 60% of my class went into practice ownership after a few years. But then, as I mentioned, when I joined a corporate veterinary practice in the late 90s, that was sort of new. That was sort of novel. It was like, what is this about? Let, let, let's go see what this is about. And again, there was nothing wrong with that. In fact, I, I really, really attribute the fact that I do have the business acumen. I did, in, in fact, decide to go get my MBA because I was working on the business side in regional management or as a medical director or regional medical director. So those, that, those changes within the veterinary community came about in the late 90s, 2000s. And I think it came about because, one, that was around the time when there were practitioners who needed to sell their practices, they perhaps did not have associates that could buy into their practice or want to buy into their practice. So that's when the companies, the private equity companies came into existence around veterinary medicine. Hey, it's a profitable business. In fact, we've just learned that we're COVID proof. We're pandemic proof. We're we're one of the businesses that got busier, right? This this really tough time for the world. And we became busier during this time for for many reasons. People talk about COVID puppies, but at any rate, we, we are a business that has caught the eye of the private equity world. And that that started a while back, but it's even more so now. So those are the changes that I saw happening with the flow. I learned how to be you know, a multi-unit manager. I learned the back office piece. I learned the people management piece and the leadership piece as they came along because those roles did not exist 20, 25 years ago. You know, the multi-unit management was nothing that existed for veterinarians at all. So there are a lot of veterinarians that have only known this world of large group practices. You know, they come out of school and that's who they go to work with. What I'm seeing and and what some of us are seeing is that we need to look at how can veterinarians continue to or get back into practice ownership because we don't want to give away all of our love and passion 
to a company, you know, that perhaps doesn't quite see us the way we see ourselves. We are a compassionate, empathetic profession. We're quite altruistic as well. And I want us to be able to, or at least have those avenues to explore that ownership piece again, because that used to be a cornerstone of veterinary medicine, practice ownership. I, I know just the the examples we have where I'm at. I'm in a, a small town in Louisiana, and my sister-in-law is actually a vet as well. We graduated together, but who she works with, I mean, he's it's been here forever, you know, <laughs> and the other places are the same. And even when we were like just getting into veterinary school, like that was the expectation from the established veterinarians that were in town. Um, it was kind of like, you know, well, yeah, you're going to go into ownership. And I don't, I think I've always, I've been one of those ones that I have that fear, you know, I have a lot of fears surrounding ownership, but I had it from the get go, but I feel like we were right in that transition where practice ownership was just what you did when you got out, whether it was right away or down the line. And where we were starting to see, you know, graduates having absolutely no interest in ownership. And so continue on. I just, (laughs) I've noticed, like, I feel like I was in the middle of that shift. I mean, absolutely. It did happen. And the veterinary medicine sometimes lags a little bit behind the other uh, genres of medicine. So this has happened. This consolidation has happened in dental and human medicine. It's happened in chiropractic and human medicine. It's even happened in family practices practitioners in human medicine in which they become parts of large groups. So we are now becoming, you know, similar to, we we tend to lag behind in that respect, those business practices. But there are veterinarians out there that would like to, you know, how do I own my own business? So think about being an employed veterinarian. And there's, again, Sometimes your first two or three years out of school, that's what you want because you want to be your medicine. You don't want to have to think about medicine, even though there was a generation that graduated on Friday and they opened their business on, on Monday, which is hard to believe. But yes, we, we have many practitioners out there that own their businesses 40, 50 years or so. But think about coming out of school now. You still feel like you need a lot of medical mentorship. You have school debt. So the thought of taking on other debt to open a business, even though, believe you me, banks will provide loans for veterinarians now. By the way, my disclaimer is I am not a a certified financial planner, but I'm just speaking for what I see and observe in the veterinary world. So you can, you know, go out and get a loan to open a veterinary business practice by yourself, but that can be scary. It's scary because you're then responsible for that business every day. Um, You're responsible for a team. You're responsible for those pets yourself obviously, until you're large enough to hire another doctor. And then, of course, you know, you've taken on a a bit more debt to grow that business. But the part that we forget is you are building wealth also. And we should not be afraid to talk about building wealth in the veterinary community because we're building wealth for someone when you're working with for someone as an employed veterinarian, um, getting a salary, you are truly building wealth, but it may not be for yourself. So that's what I want us to start thinking about. How, one, should we be thinking of building wealth for ourselves, but also that we are um, investing in our community as we see other businesses are investing in our community as well. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. I love 
my fur babies so much, but when they're stressed out, it makes me stressed out. Mine hate loud noises like thunderstorms and fireworks, and sometimes they just don't want to be left home alone. To help keep your dogs calm in moments of stress, use Brave Paws Anxiety and Stress Support Chewables for dogs. These plant-based chewables promote calm behavior with natural ingredients that have been clinically studied. Did I mention they're fast-acting and non-drowsy? I especially love that the natural ingredients are sustainably sourced. How cool is that? Want to learn more? Check out mybravepaws.com. Your dog will be happy you did. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder, you know, so much of what we see as part of the struggle with um, just like our clients and the public is this like, you know, we're all money hungry. (laughs) This is just what you made me think of. And I think coupled with like, or strong desire to just do what's best for the pet and our, our empathetic sides of, I think thinking about building wealth is really hard for some of us to do. And so I'm so glad you just pointed out like, whether you're focusing on building your own wealth or someone else's, you're, it, you're still, it's still happening. Like if you're an employee versus an employer. Um, I know that's a lot of what we, we kind of talked when we um, chatted beforehand is, you know, so many are kind of stuck in this cycle of being an employee and they really can't imagine being anything else because of some of the risks that you just touched on of ownership. But at the same time, they're stuck in this place um, of restriction because they don't have that aspect of wealth building for the long term. Um, and there is, you know, they have a ceiling that is essentially keeping them stuck where they're at. Um, and I think a lot of them feel like they don't have any real options because they see the ownership road as being daunting. There's like only one way to go down it, you know, like more traditional ownership. And so, when we were talking and you were kind of just shedding light for myself on what is happening out there and different options. I think there's so many veterinarians that listening, if they're one of those people where they feel like they're stuck, but the idea of ownership is just too too scary that when they start seeing these other avenues of ownership and how it could look different and how they could be um, involved in that aspect of things, but maybe not, like you said, um, getting alone the day they get out of school and then all of a sudden you have all these other responsibilities. And so I would just love for you to to touch on some of those changes that are happening, specifically with ownership, that may be able to lessen some of these fears that our colleagues have when it comes to taking on that risk. Absolutely. And, and keep in mind that the typical model of the consolidation or aggregator model is to go to a practitioner, their practice is two to $3 million, several doctors, and they buy the entire business from that practitioner. We've all seen that. We, we, we understand that's how that practitioner built their wealth and their equity to be able to then sell. They were hoping all those years that it was going to be to another veterinarian. But it did not go to another veterinarian for all the things we've talked about. Doctors afraid of afraid of taking on business ownership or the cost of entry at that point to try to buy a two, three million dollar practice is daunting. So as, as you mentioned, so we have we have now within the veterinary market, and I think finally our private equity and our groups are starting to realize also doctors need to have a piece of the business they're working in. One, it helps to um, maintain continuity, a consistency with doctors, because 
your doctor, if you're an employee doctor, you might hop to the next practice or the next group if they promise you 30,000 more and a $150,000 sign-on bonus, which we're seeing these days, right? But if you have a doctor that you've allowed to either buy in or share in the equity of the business and they can see how they can also grow their personal income where they are, that also helps to keep the doctor there in the business. And that's what we should want also for our client patient. So there, along with the typical or the aggregator model of buying practices 100% cash sale or whatever, and the owner stays on for two or three years, there's also now the models in which doctors can be anywhere from 10 to 20 to 49% owners in a business, in a veterinary clinic. Um, there are groups out there that really understand that veterinarians should be making the decisions in the hospitals also. When you are a 10, 20, or 49% owner, owner operator in a business, you are truly there making the medical decisions, the, the team member decisions, but you're not doing it all alone. So you have that back office support. So one of the biggest parts of running any business, as you're probably learning with running your business, is all the back office piece. You know, all the HR piece, the marketing piece, the personnel piece, the payroll piece. And that's really what a lot of doctors, when they sell their practices, there's like, oh, thank God I don't have to do all that anymore. <laughs> or even worry about it happening anymore because that's what a company comes in and it does for a doctor. So when you join a group that gives you that you're allowed to either buy in or what's called sweat equity, sort of work your way into ownership with them. You have that back office support. You have business coaches. You have medical coaches uh, that teach you how to help to deliver medicine in even a better way. You have that ability to learn the business even more as opposed to have to learn it, you know, hook and crook and make the mistakes on inventory and make the mistakes on hiring too many people or having your payroll too heavy and you don't have any profits or something like that. So this model that is there, that partnership, that owner-operator model, is one that I would like a lot more doctors to know about because that is truly wealth building. Also down the line, you would have probably paid yourself more than if you were an employee doctor. That's something to keep in mind. You, We may be really happy with our six-figure salaries that veterinarians are getting now as employee doctors, and there's nothing wrong with that either. We should be happy, but guess what? If they can pay you a six-figure salary and production, just what if, what if, that was your business and you had a stake in it, what your um, wealth would be also. While I'm sitting here, I'm like, if I were still in practice, I would be in a more traditional, you know, like I said, it, it's been here forever. It was always just my boss and I was associate, you know, very small town operation. And I'm listening and being like, man, this all sounds amazing. But like, how does someone that is already in an established practice that may still be in that like all or nothing, like you're either going to buy the whole practice or you're not. How does someone go about learning more about this model and trying to get in a position where they can explore it more and possibly, you know, have a part of a share in that practice or maybe it's someone that's not happy with where they're at, but they want to be connected with a clinic that is, you know, forward facing with this idea of of joint ownership. Do you have advice for our listeners that are kind of in that situation? Well, research. You have to research the industry. A lot of the newer groups that are there 
are definitely using this type of model for their doctors and have owner operators. So you definitely have to do the research to find out where those groups are and what the cost of entry is. Because if it's 10%, there may be a smaller amount of money you have to come up with, or if it's 20% or 49%. But of course, keep in mind that each of those levels of ownership, you also then get rewarded more on the back end. Because if you're a 49% owner, then you will get the 49% of the profits as well. And then they also will usually help to finance the rest of that. So it's not a bank loan necessarily you have to go get to finance the rest because a lot of them are what's called de novo practices where they will you will find a loca- location together and then you will actually open that practice as a new practice as a owner operator. So there's a, a small amount of sometimes upfront capital, or as I mentioned, there's often sweat equity or what's called profit sharing, where you're a doctor that's working there and you get more of the profits from being uh, a lead partner type doctor as well. So I think that's where I would just say that you need to do research and finding out where these groups are, where these practices are. I'll even go back to touch on what you mentioned there, where you're working in an established practice What about how can I, if I go to this owner and say I'm interested in buying this practice, and it may be a million or $2 million practice, there oftentimes owners will help you with, you know, they will actually carry the note with you for a while. But as I mentioned, there have been banks are almost bending over backwards right now to invest in veterinary medicine um, from what I see as well. So there is that option, but I just want doctors to understand there is another option as an entry. And keep in mind that new grads, I know there are some entrepreneurial new grads out there. I know there's some doctors that are three years and less that are out there. It's like, how do I get into practice ownership with all this going on in my life? You know, learning the business, carrying my school debt. By the way, getting into your own practice, again, will help you be able to pay your school debt down faster as opposed to just being an employee doctor. I had a doctor tell me recently, she's like, you know, I've been practicing for 20 years. And this is a doctor that wants to enter into an agreement uh, with one of the businesses that help doctors to, you know, be a part owner. She goes, I've been practicing for 20 years and I feel like I have nothing to show for it. In other words, I know that I've been helping this company build this practice, build the income in this practice. I can see it. I've seen it grow since I've been here, but my part in it is just, my salary um, and a little production. She goes, I am going to look for this model because I want to continue to grow in my own business acumen, but also to help to build my wealth as well. I think that happens quite often. Um, that evolution, once you you get out and it's like all of a sudden you realize, oh man, I don't, <laughs> I don't have much to show for what I've been doing when it comes to that aspect of what you just shared. Well, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll continue just digging into to this topic because it's one that needs to be dug into. So we'll be right back. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hey, this is Omar Lopez. And Eric Meyer. And we want you to check out our new podcast, Working Class, where two lawyers from opposite sides of the law discuss the hottest employment issues today from both the employee and the employer perspective. Check us out on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting platform.
This is uh, Living Well with Dr. Jessica, and I'm here with Dr. Pam, and we have just been exploring the topic of practice ownership and some of the things that or, you know, fears out there for our colleagues, shedding light on why we need to kind of let go of some of those fears, some of the advancements that are taking place, and some of the exciting things that are happening within our profession that are allowing ownership to be more feasible for for everyone out there. And so I really hope that, you know, listening in, you are encouraged if you've, you know, been one of those that are on the fence and, you know, the idea of ownership just seems too terrifying. <laughs> I hope this has been, like I said, just some encouragement to go out there and do some research, see what your options are, and see if um, what Dr. Pam's been sharing is something that you would benefit from, you know, taking action on. As we we kind of shift gears, um, I know that one of the things that you're really passionate about is just making sure that um, there's appropriate change occurring within our profession when it comes to um, diversity and seeing more minorities in leadership roles. And I would love to just kind of let you share the work that you've been doing as it um, pertains to that and how we could all be a part in making sure that we're um, continuing to make progress with that. Great. And thanks. So I'm going to go back to one quick thing, though. You mentioned the word feasible a minute ago. I want us to get past the, the part of being concerned that it's inappropriate for veterinarians to want to build wealth, too, that we should not worry about making a profit in our businesses. Keep in mind that any veterinary practice, whether it's corporate owned or privately owned, is a part of the community. It is part of that eco ecosystem of the community. You're you're providing jobs for however many people, six, seven, eight, nine people. You are providing a community service. It's amazing to me when a new practice opens up, you think, well, there are enough veterinary practices around here. And all of a sudden you have enough clients. You have people finding out about you and coming there and, and they're happy that you're there. They even say that we're so glad you're here type thing. So it is okay to work for wealth building because you're also building wealth for your community. And that's important to us as veterinarians. We're giving back to our community by having a viable business. I love that you backtrack to that because it's so true. And again, I, I live in a very small town where veterinarians were always very highly regarded. They were a big part of their community. Oftentimes they served on different boards for the community. You know, they, it, they were an important role. And we have three clinics. And again, we're very small and we've had three clinics for as long as I can remember, but it's still not enough. You know, like we could probably use a, a fourth, but I think sometimes just having that, that outside perspective and reminder of all that we really do, you know, the many aspects that we kind of have our hands in, it, it's so easy to get wrapped up in taking care of patients and then kind of hanging on to the negative that we do here from time to time about, you know, just being out for money and things like that. When the reality is it's so much more, it's, it's what you just said, that picture of just like the full circle. And so thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. So we, yeah, we, we need to keep that in mind. So that's why it, there are feasible ways to own veterinary practices and very quickly you could, you know, have a very viable business. You know, you're probably going to break even in the first, you know, six to seven months and probably before the end of your first year, you know, there should be 
you know, profits that you're enjoying at that time. And that can be done obviously by yourself, but as I mentioned, the, the models that, that are out there that help you to run your business is huge because then you're not there doing it all yourself and you're able to actually grow your business a lot faster because you do have that support as well. And I was I always like to talk about the other F, which is fear. <laughs> so fear is okay. I sort of see fear is that little part of our brain that makes us sort of be, you know, have that 360, our heads on a swivel. Let's make sure we're covering this and covering that and getting this done. So owning a business, I'm sure can be very scary. But again, I'll go back to the model, this, this co-owner model with the group that's going to be there for you. You're going to have the business coaches and the medical coaches and all of that there with you. So it's okay. I'm afraid every time I take a new job, take my word for it. A hundred percent. Fear has its place for sure. And like you said, any, any new venture you take on, whether it's practice ownership or, I mean, honestly, for me doing this podcast, you know, <laughs> it was one of like the most fearful things I've ever done. Honestly, you you just have to get to a point where you don't let it keep you in a place where you're, you're stuck. You know, you got to use it to drive you forward. And, and like you said, you, you want that awareness. You want to make sure that you're, you're aware of all the things that are going on around you, but it's when you allow it to kind of just squash everything that we need to get fear out the way. <laughs> but I always want to mention that because people think, well, you know, oh, they look so confident. I've been told, well, Dr. Hale, you just always land on your feet. And I said, well, you didn't see me when I was crying over in the corner. <laughs> I was crying in the corner, but you know, I'm, I'm up now. I came up with my plan and that's it. Just knowing how to come up with your plan. So don't be afraid of practice ownership. In fact, we need more of our doctors to uh, sort of reclaim our business. Let's let's reclaim our veterinary business so that we have control over the medical care that pets get. We have control of the decisions that surround our paraprofessionals and our professions all, all together, which brings me to, you know, what you alluded to a, a little bit ago. You know, as a minority that's worked in the veterinary community now for many years, one, I am a Black veterinarian. We're less than 2% of the entire veterinary population in the United States, which is around, they say, around 100,000 veterinarians in the U.S., according to the AVMA or so. And we are a small part of this wonderful profession. When I tell people I'm a veterinarian, I still get that look like, really? I've never met a Black veterinarian before. I'm like, I know lots of them. I know hundreds of them, you know? So I always want to mention that because we're such a small part of the population, we're often not seen. We're, we're sometimes invisible. Now, I live in an area of the country, Atlanta, Georgia, where there are a lot of minority veterinary practice owners. So it's a very common thing for me. A lot of Tuskegee graduates are here in Atlanta and own practices as well. But I also want, when I tell my minority veterinarians about this model of practice ownership, a lot of them have never heard about it. They just don't even know, they hadn't even thought of it as an option of practice ownership as an option, and they don't even know this option is out there. So I want to make sure that when everybody hears about this, every veterinarian that particularly has interest in ownership or hadn't even thought about it, and I can put this in their head like, huh, maybe there is a way that I can own a practice. But I also want our minority doctors to step up as well, because our client population needs to be reflected and the veterinarians and the veterinary owners as well. Our population, our clients is very diverse and it's important that we're, you know, they see veterinarians that look like them. And that's, that's just not black veterinarians. That is also Asian, that is also Hispanic, all kinds of, of people as well need to be reflected in the veterinary community and in, in the veterinary ownership as well. 
So that's in, in my years of leadership, that's not just been only a focus of mine, obviously, but when I've given the opportunity to help mentor or coach uh, young minority veterinarians toward either leadership or practice ownership or, you know, just a person who's interested in veterinary medicine, that's a minority. You know, I always try to be there for them and provide, you know, whatever information and mentorship that I can. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Yeah, so that's a great, like, tangible action that I think any listener could can walk away with. Because, you know, I'm sitting here like, what can the average veterinarian do to play a role in this? And you, you, you said it. You know, like, if you have a, a high school student that has interest in the veterinary profession that isn't a minority, like even more reason to kind of take them under your wing and answer questions and um, help them see what this world is about. Um, I think it's, I think it's easy for us to look at someone like you that is in a position where you can make a bigger difference versus like someone that's in private practice in a small town. Like, does that make sense? Like, I, I feel like we could tell ourselves that story. Like we, well, we don't have the same opportunities to to make a difference when it comes to that aspect of, you know, veterinary medicine, but it's something as simple as what you just said. Um, and so I love that because I feel like even though I've been out of practice for six years, it's not uncommon for a mom to reach out and say, Hey, my, my son or daughter is interested in veterinary medicine. Would you mind like talking to them or answering some questions and just to maybe be a little more mindful of, those students that are interested and even encouraging, you know, if you know someone that has like the giftings where they would excel in our, our field, like plant that seed because they may not have that example of veterinarian that looks like them. And even as like someone that may not look like them, you could still plant that seed and make that suggestion and be part of that, that encouragement to pursue something that maybe is a little less traditional you know, in, in their mind. I love that. I, I love what you just said, because I often remind my colleagues who have a sincere interest in diversity, equity, and inclusion is that we need allies. When you're a minority, it means you're small. <laughs> you're a small group within a larger group. And that means because we're small, we do need allies, non-people of color as well. You know, we need everybody to recognize that they have a part in also, you know, helping to advance, you know, people of color in our profession. So even in small communities, I'm sure there are high schools or local technical colleges or community colleges that, you know, you can go speak to. I actually went to a high school this past week uh, and met with a, a few high school students. And one of the teachers came to me and said, I'm sure these students have never seen a Black veterinarian before and hadn't even thought of it as a the possibility of a profession. You know, my mouth sort of falls open when I hear that because I, I started my story with you as a graduate from veterinary school, but I actually decided to be a veterinarian when I was seven years old. And my parents were like, what? <laughs> because there were no veterinarians in our family. 
Uh, I love puppies. You know, when I was a little girl and I got several puppies and my story is that my puppies would get sick and then I wouldn't be able to heal them. As I recall, I remember thinking if I was a dog doctor, I would have been able to take care of them. And so I told my parents, I'm going to be a dog doctor because I couldn't say veterinarian. (laughs) So, you know, while many of us have that passion from a young age, there are people we can touch, you know, in high school. There are people we can touch as they're entering college. I I know a veterinarian who didn't decide to go to vet school till after they had done a career in the Air Force for 20 years and they got out and went to vet school or after they had graduated and were working out in the real world and they're like, yeah, I want to go to vet school. So we can continue to touch people, you know, in all stages of their lives about this profession as well. Do you have, um, I I would love to, you know, if we have listeners and they're like, I'm a minority, I feel, you know, whether it's unseen or just they notice that lack of connection or support wherever they're at, can you maybe share on some of the things that are out there that are being a part of um, bridging that gap um, support-wise that they could connect with if maybe they're in an area where they don't have such a, Uh, demographic as you do? Well, I would suggest any young person who's interested, you know, any young person, person of color or not, to go to your local veterinarian. Most of us are, as you know, we're kind people and we love people, our our young people to come in and talk to us and see what we do. We like to show off a little bit of what we do. Uh, I remember I was working in a hospital, actually as a relief doctor a couple of years ago, and a little girl, she's actually on my Facebook page. I think she was like five or six and her mother called up to this hospital and said, I'd like to bring my doctor in to meet the veterinarian. I happened to be the doctor there that day. So I have a picture of me and little Riley. And I'm hoping little Riley, you know, one day I'll see Riley graduate from veterinary school somewhere. But I would say any person has an interest, you know, reach out to your local veterinarian because they they absolutely will welcome I would say most veterinarians will welcome people into their practice. In addition, if you specifically want to say, try to find a minority veterinarian, uh, you can always reach out to my alma mater or any veterinary school, you know, Tuskegee University. There are actually now also uh, organizations that highlight uh, minority veterinarians, the Multicultural DVM Association, the National Association of Black Veterinarians. So there are associations, associations out there that could help you know, young folk that want to connect with uh, minority veterinarians also. And I will go back to myself when, you know, we love to talk about ourselves, but (laughs) I didn't meet uh, a Black veterinarian actually till I went to veterinary school. And I did choose to go to Tuskegee. My dad was in the Air Force and we had traveled all around. We were originally from Alabama and I did choose to go to Tuskegee deliberately, undergrad and veterinary school. So any veterinarians that I met growing up were usually on Air Force bases um, but that didn't deter me. That was my goal to be a veterinarian. And I didn't even know all the things that veterinarians did. I just knew that I wanted to be a dog doctor. Well, it's obviously served you well. <laughs> so, You know what? There would be no, there's no other profession that I'd rather be in. But the thing about veterinary medicine, you know, I'm, you know, we've been talking a lot about practice ownership, which my thing about practice ownership is I just want to make sure our doctors know there's an avenue there for practice ownership that may not be just the traditional one where you go and open up a practice yourself. You can have support for it. But there, you know, the veterinary world now is so diverse as for the things that we can do in the veterinary world, you know, the different roles that I've had, I've had have just come about in the last few years or so. But I'm just seeing that, you know, because I'm in leadership and because I have worked with different organizations, I'm just seeing 
the movement of the veterinary hospitals away from veterinarians owning them. And that's just something important that I think we should, as a profession, make sure we step back and I realize is happening. Yeah, absolutely. And thank goodness we have advocates such as yourself that notice those shifts and, you know, are speaking up about them and helping, again, bridge that gap of what we think are the only options and what um, is really out there. I really appreciate you coming on today. I always love to end with our listeners having an opportunity to connect with you. Um, so if you don't mind sharing, you know, how they could keep keep up with what you're doing, if they want more information about the work you do, um, how would they be able to find you? You know, probably the best way to find me is on LinkedIn. I do post periodically. Um, I've been involved in an event or a publication. So it's Pam Hale, DBM, MBA on LinkedIn would be the best way to find me. And if anybody just wants to reach out and say, hey, either, you know, what can I do to take my next step in leadership? You know, what are these companies that are out there that I can reach out to about practice ownership, this co-owner type operator model? You know, I can provide information on that as well. But I, I welcome anyone reaching out to me. I My story is long and it's a long, crooked road, but I'm here. Those are the best, though. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hello, this is Caitlin Palmer. You probably know me as the desk wench. You know, the sweet TikTok receptionist who has to deal with the evil Karen Stevens. Well, if you like that, you are going to love my new podcast, Desk Wench Confessions. On my show, I have funny guests who tell me about their own Karens. Plus, we have contests, giveaways, and skits. Trust me, you are going to love it. Check it out on a podcast platform of your choice on Vet Candy Radio. That's what allows you to be able to speak to so many different people because of your, you know, your experience. And there's just something that you can't replace experience, you know, like that. I, I feel like that's just the ultimate like um, connector amongst people. And so I know I'm talking for everyone when we say that we're grateful that you're so open for us to to connect with you because you're a gem within the profession. Well, thank you very much for that. Again, I feel honored to be on your podcast. Um, and I hope I've been able to shed some light on the veterinary industry and what's going on and, um, you know, what we can do within that industry to, to sort of, you know, keep it in the hands of veterinarians. Oh, yeah, you absolutely did. I know we're going to have some people get off and and hopefully start doing, you know, um, some homework on what their options are out there and, and start getting excited about the the idea of ownership and being a part of kind of reclaiming that as a profession. I hope so, too. Well, thank you very much. Um, this is Dr. Jessica with Living Well. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. It's Vet Candy Radio.